Well, on Wednesday night, uh, we're going to um, go through the Bible as we do. Uh, and we're this next week, between this Wednesday and uh, coming up uh, this next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we're gonna, Lord willing, finish the book of Matthew. So quite a journey. A lot of you've uh, traveled through this book with us. And, and then Matthew, the next book, uh, we go to Mark. Uh, so it's just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and right on through the Bible. When we get to the Revelation, then we start back at Genesis. And this will be, uh, we're going on to pretty soon here, our third time around uh, in the Bible. So uh, if you stick with us for only 13 or 15 years, uh, you'll go through the whole Bible with us. Uh, and it's really, you'll find that to be a special moment. I, I talk to Ethan Creekers a lot, you know, and I ask, so when did you start coming? And almost uh, without exception, people, oh, the Psalms. Like they don't talk about dates, they talk about what book of the Bible they joined us uh, with, which is kind of fun. Uh, so anyway, we're gonna finish up Matthew this week. Um, I'd like to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 28. It's appropriate that we're finishing up Matthew um, because um, we're uh, here celebrating Palm Sunday this Sunday, and we're celebrating the resurrection this whole week, the you know, week of Easter, Resurrection Sunday, and we're just in that place. We just looked at Palm Sunday a few weeks ago as we were going through Matthew, uh, kind of did a deeper dive. And so I'd like to kind of begin our discussion on the resurrection as that's where we are in the scriptures, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Does the US government believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, apparently in Greenville, South Carolina, the Department of Social Services wrote a welfare recipient, quote, your food stamps will be stopped effective immediately because we have received a notice that you have passed away. You may reapply if there's a change in your circumstances. <laughs> So apparently the government does believe in the resurrection. But um, this is an important question that you uh, and I and we as Christians need to have already answered. If you're a Christian, you should know this. Uh, if you're not a Christian, you should think about this because the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, is the most important, I think, part of the gospel message that a lot of times people leave out. Jesus didn't just come and die on the cross for your sins. He died on the cross and then he was buried, and three days later, he rose from the grave. Um, this is an important thing, because people that don't realize the raising from the grave part is one of the most important, essential parts of the whole thing. I'll show you that as we get further into this. But um, all that to say, you know, the resurrection of Jesus is, I believe, one of the most provable historical events uh, in all the world's history. And the reason why is the mass amount of evidence and the mass effect on this planet. When you think about it, the resurrection of Jesus is so unlikely. Some, some little guy that lived in Nazareth who was a carpenter's son, uh, Nazareth wasn't even a big town. You know, when, when we in America talk about these biblical towns, we think of these big cities, old city of Nazareth. Do you remember what they said when they said Jesus was from Nazareth? One of the guys said, what good thing comes from Nazareth? Um, you know, it's like, uh, it, it's, it's like Nazareth was a podunk little tiny speck of a town. In fact, if you go to Nazareth today, it's still a fairly small town, but during the time of Christ, I've been to Nazareth probably eight or nine times, um, and if you wanna see the ancient site of the city of Nazareth, you have to go into a church building. They built a church over the whole city. Um, in fact, you could fit all of the city of Nazareth uh, during the time of Christ in this half of our sanctuary right here. That's how big Nazareth was, the city of Nazareth where Jesus was from. And you can go into this church. You're like, why am I going to the church? I wanted to see a city because the city was so spec spectacular. Uh, it was just a speck. Uh, you just kind of have to see it in, in, this, it's in this church, you know, and you can go see the ruins of Nazareth. So that's why, you know, it's, this 
obscure town with this obscure carpenter. How in the world did our whole dating system start wrapping around a single person, Jesus Christ of Nazareth? What happened that turned the world upside down where even the Roman Empire would eventually fall because of Christianity? Started by a little guy from Nazareth. What was the thing that made everything change? Was it his you know, pushy personality? Was he you know, a guy who was aggressive and trying to make himself known? Well, if you remember the story, most of the time he's saying, hey, don't tell anybody. Like, don't tell him about the miracles that I just did. And, and uh, he wasn't all large and in charge trying to impress everybody, but he was just loving, doing kind acts. And by the end of his ministry, everybody hated him and was saying, crucify him. And even his friends betrayed him and ran for their lives. That's the way his story sort of ends, at least at the cross. And then they bury him. And three days later, he raises up from the grave, just like he said he would. And that's what changed the whole deal. Some people base their faith on the resurrection or the belief in the resurrection on just simple faith. And that's good, that works. If you just say, man, I, I just believe that that's what happened and, and I have faith that that happened, that's good. But I wanna also tell you, if you're more of a you know, engineering mind or logical person, or you like more of the facts, there are plenty of facts that you can dive into uh, and many people have over the centuries. And the resurrection is perhaps one of the most provable facts in history. Um, you know, the fact that Jesus changed the world, there's actually a somewhat of a studious book uh, called uh, The Man Who Changed the World. And it's an interesting read that talks about how one man, Jesus, affected the whole world so radically. And it's kind of an interesting take on how is it that this man uh, changed the world? Well, the fact is he was God who became a man, lived among us, died on the cross for the sins of the world, and then rose from the grave. Um, so the big question about our faith is, is that. Um, you know, the world, by the way, right now, there's a big giant ecumenical movement happening right now, syncretism or an ecumenical move of religions all coming together. They're building church buildings around the globe now. They're, you know, Muslim, Jewish, Christian, the three great faiths, as people call it, and all this stuff. And um, the problem is, um, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what true Christianity is. And if you're trying to meld you know, Buddhism and Christianity and you know, uh, Islam and put them all in the same, uh, that's what the world is trying to do. And that's what a lot of people try to say is happening. But you, if you're really a, a true believer in Jesus, you have to believe what he said. And what he said was that he was the only way to heaven. Jesus was either lying about this or he's either a lunatic where he just made up stuff, I'm God in the flesh, um, and you're supposed to worship me and believe in me and be saved and go to heaven. Like he's either a lunatic or a liar or third option, he really was who he claimed to be. How do we know he is who he claimed to be? In fact, you'll get this question, how do you Christians know that your faith is better than all the other faiths? What makes Christianity more believable or better than all the other faiths? The answer is actually pretty easy. No other religious guru, leader, starter, uh, you know, whatever, none of them did anything to substantiate their claim. No one. Muhammad actually made a claim that he would return to Jerusalem, which he never did. Um, you know, Buddha left his family uh, to enter into that third eye of understanding and find the state of the snuffed out candle or whatever, you know, weird thing he was contemplating. And, and um, you know, the, the, but, but he was not really a great dude if, if you're looking for a family man, somebody who cares about your children and stuff like that. I mean, it's really kind of an amazing thing when you really look at the religions and, and things people will believe 
But Christianity is the one belief where the founder of Christianity, Christ, Christianity, Christ said, you want a proof of what I'm saying? Then destroy this body in three days, I will raise it up again. And nobody else did anything even close to that. And if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then Christianity would have been dead in the cradle uh, in the early part of the Christian church because they wouldn't have had any proof and nobody would have believed. Everybody had already bolted already when Jesus died on the cross. It would have been snuffed out had he not risen from the grave. And that's something I wanna look at, the proof positive of, of really the resurrection. Let's start with our text. Matthew 28, verse one is where we left off on Wednesday night. Matthew 28, verse one. It says, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel, angel answered and said unto the women, fear not ye, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he goes before you into Galilee. There shall you see him, lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples word. So unlikely that, you know, if, if this was a made up story, by the way, would, would women have been the first ones to find the empty tomb? Would they have put that in the narrative? Did they really respect women generally back in those days? Not even close. Um, I love how Christianity, by the way, is the first group in, in history that actually really honors women. You'll hear a different narrative from other people who hate the Bible. But, you know, it's, it's amazing to me that that would be so unlikely if you're making up a religion in those days, in the first century, and said, oh, we're gonna make the people that first see the resurrected Jesus be women. That's, that's already unlikely if you're trying to make up a story. But because it was a true story, that's just what went down. These ladies went to see the tomb and man, I love it. The Lord uses them. And I like the way they leave with fear and great joy. Have you ever had that mixed emotion of fear and great joy? They're kind of freaking out. What did we just say? An angel who moved the stone, all these Roman soldiers laying there. Remember the Roman guard that Pilate allowed the Jews to put there to guard the tomb to make sure no funny business happened? They're all laying there as dead men. There's this angel sitting on the stone that used to be covering the tomb. Don't you wonder what that was like? The angel's just sitting there. And he's, you know, he's brightly shining. Like bright as lightning, it says. And the lady's like, ah, oh, fear. No wonder they had fear. But, but when they heard, he is not here. He is risen. Oh man, they go with fear and great joy. The resurrection, what a great story. And there's so many parts of the story that are so unlikely um, and, and, and yet it's the story, the narrative that actually is the real story. I think there's, there's evidence. You know, when people lie about stuff, often just they try to make it more grand or they fill in too much information or they make stuff that's more believable. There's so many things about the story that are kind of unbelievable. It almost makes it more believable. 
But, but more than that, there's evidence and reasons why we believe the resurrection actually did happen. And, and, and you say, Brett, what if I don't care about this? What if I just wanna be a Christian? I like Jesus. Uh, I believe he died on the cross, but why do I have to believe in the resurrection? The answer is, it's the gospel. It's part of the gospel message. He died on the cross, was buried, and rose from the grave. Here, Paul the apostle, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Great chapter on the resurrection, by the way. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the whole chapter. But there, Paul spells out the gospel. I think every Christian should know this passage because if, you, if you're ever asked what the gospel is, this is the answer. If you go downtown Portland, Pioneer Square, and ask people what the Christian gospel is, you'll hear all kinds of weird stuff. It's love and peace to humanity and uh, kindness to all and saving the earth and being in community or whatever they wanna say, it's all stupid. Uh, that's, not, that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is what Paul says. For He says, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins. That's the first component of this gospel message that um, we're sinners. And, and part of that acknowledging that Christ died for our sins also would imply a need for repentance of sin. Sins are bad and we should agree with God on that and acknowledge our sin before God. That means to repent. And so you're acknowledging that Christ died for our sins. There had to be a death. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. So Jesus died for our sins in our place, substitutionarily. Um, and it's not just what happened, it's according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and component number two, that he was buried. He literally died. He didn't sort of halfway die. Um, there's the swooning theory that people try to discredit the resurrection by saying, well, Jesus never really was completely dead. He, he was just mostly dead. And they thought he was dead, but he really wasn't dead. So they put him in the tomb, wrapped him in the graves and, and left him there, put the stone over. Uh, but he, uh, now think about this to believe this. You have to be a little bit weirdo. Um, Jesus was stabbed with a spear up through his ribs. A blood and water came gushing out. He was already dead. Uh, the, the Romans who were experts on death, uh, did they mistake? that he was still alive. He had nails in his hands. He'd hung on a cross for hours. Um, he'd been whipped with a flagellum, 39 lashes, you know, horribly uh, bloodied, beaten. And he, he, the Bible says he gave up the ghost. He died. And everybody, the Romans, experts on death said he died. So then they put him in the tomb, but he wasn't completely dead. You have to believe that the cool, moist air of the tomb just sort of revived him. And suddenly he got up and took off his grave clothes. Oh man, I feel great. So great was he feeling that he rolled the stone away himself. You guys remember the $6 million man? <laughs> As Jesus is rolling, you young people are like, what is he doing up there? Um, it's a TV show um, when we were kids. Anyway, he, he felt so peppy that he rolled the stone away himself, fought off the 50 Roman soldiers that were outside of the tomb, and suddenly came to the disciples, I'm back, and I feel great. Is that what happened? Like to have that kind of faith, I don't, I'm not that weird. I don't have that kind of weirdo, crazy level faith to believe any of that. Um, but what I do believe is what the gospel of the Bible says, he was buried, that is Christ died for our sins, according to scriptures, and he was buried in the tomb, dead. Um, what did he do when he was in the tomb? You know, cause you know, you're, you know, when you die, your soul goes somewhere. Well, we went over that on Wednesday night. What did Jesus do in the three days of the burial uh, session. Uh, we covered that, if you're interested on that, we covered that Wednesday night in our Through the Bible study. But the second component, he was buried, and then here's the third component of the gospel, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. 
Um, this is the gospel, that he died on the cross for our sins, was buried, and he rose again the third day. This is what puts Jesus apart from Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, Oprah, any of the people that, that people try to you know, esteem as you know, gods or goddesses, uh, no. Uh, only Jesus actually did something to prove their spiritual claims. And this is an important thing. So the gospel in a nutshell, later on in the same chapter, Paul the apostle puts an exclamation point on the need for us to believe in the resurrection. In fact, if you fast forward 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, it says, now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there's no resurrection of the dead? There were people in that day saying, nobody really raises from the dead. The chiefest of that group, by the way, was one of the religious groups called the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in life after death, the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. That's how you remember that. Um, they didn't believe in life after death. So the Sadducees, by the way, if you don't believe in life after death, you don't believe in you know, the eternal, after you die, you even go to heaven or hell, um, that changes your worldview a lot. Um, this explains a lot of the worldview that we are seeing in America today. If you believe this is all there is, just only this life, what, what are you gonna do? You're gonna live with great fear and hang on to your life desperately, Man, whatever you do, you don't get, want to get sick or, or die. That's the worst thing in the world. That would be the end of you. But see, if you're a person who believes in God, you also believe there's something greater than you and something eternal. And you believe, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you believe that Christ made it so you and I have life after death. And that's where life really begins. This life on earth is equated to death. Even if you're alive, you're still kind of dead. We were born in sin and in death. And the Bible says that. So... So Paul says, how is it that some of you, uh, he says here in 1 Corinthians 15, how is it some of you believe there's no resurrection of the dead? He, and then he goes into this rhetorical sort of rant, verse 13. He says, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching vain and your faith vain also. In other words, our preaching and talking about Jesus and sermonizing and all the Christianity and faith and all that stuff, total waste of time. If Jesus didn't raise up from the grave, and in fact, if there's churches today that will try to say, well, Jesus died on the cross and Jesus existed, but, um, but actually we don't really need the resurrection. That's, that's something that's a little, uh, a little bit too far for us. Um, Paul would argue and say, are you kidding? If you believe in Jesus dying on the cross without the resurrection, then you might as well pack up your Bibles and go home and party down until you die. And then he goes on. In fact, uh, the next verse, in verse 15, he says, um, yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. If Christ didn't be raised up, we're liars, he's saying, because we have testified that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead are not raised. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised? And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. You are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep or dead in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. What's he saying? He's saying, if we're walking around as Christians talking about Jesus, but Jesus didn't raise up from the grave, why would we do what we're doing? Our life would be miserable. Question, was Paul's life miserable? Well, you might say on sort of a external view, yes, he was beaten up many times. One time they stoned him, stoned him to death 
literally like left him for dead. There's, there's possibility that he actually was dead for a little bit. Because remember that he was taken up into heaven and saw a vision of heaven, maybe at that time. But he wasn't really completely dead. So he comes out of the pile of rocks and goes back in and preaches a sermon in town. Uh, he was bitten by a viper, shipwrecked many times, um, you know, totally rejected by his brothers, the Jews. Like Paul lived a pretty miserable life. But as it turns out, Paul would talk about joy and rejoicing. The whole book of Philippians was written from prison about joy and how to be happy and joy, rejoice. What was wrong with Paul? He even said stuff, I don't count my life dear to myself. Paul said that. Um, that's the way I see a lot of people. Oh, my life is so dear to myself. I hope I live and I don't want to die. And if I die, oh, and we get all. But if you're a Christian who believes in the life after death that Christ provides, then we, we say, we're not afraid of death. Boy, our country's changing because we used to be willing to die for things. We had issues that we, we cared about enough to, to die for stuff. It's funny because the Bible actually requires that. Jesus says, you know, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll gain life. The Christian faith um, believes in a life after death that's eternal. This little 75, 80, if you're really lucky, 90 years you get on this life, it's a blip on the screen. But if you're a Christian and believes in eternal life that Jesus provides through the resurrection, by the way, then what happens? Well, if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, you're yet in your sins. Then in verse 18, it says, then also they which are dead in Christ are perished. They cease to exist. And that's why he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. In other words, if it's just about the here and now, what a horrible thing. By the way, that's why I think most of the atheists I know are kind of grouchy people. Have you ever noticed that? I'm sorry if you're an atheist, but it's just true. Most atheists I know are grouchy. And some of them are even kind of mean-spirited. But if I were you, I would be that way too, because if this is all there is, what a bummer. Life would be a bummer. You get born, you feel great until you're 18, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> gravity kicks in, and you get, you get things on your skin, and your, your dermatologist says, well, you're just getting older. Yeah, but it's, it's a thing on my skin. Yeah, you'll get barnacles the older you get. <laughs> um, you know, skin tags and... And then you'll, you're pretty soon, you won't, you'll have to go to the bathroom all the time. And you know, you started in diapers and you end in diapers. And man, it's just the light, you get old and everything hurts. When you turn 50, everything hurts. And then it gets worse at 60, 70, 80, and pretty soon you die. Well, if you're an atheist, that's pretty much the story. And even if you're wealthy, you still have all that stuff I just explained. So no wonder atheists are grouchy, but that's why Paul says, if, if all we've got is this life and we're walking around saying, Jesus saves and, and, and he doesn't, then we of all men are most miserable because we're, we're trying to live for something that's not even real. But what's Paul's point? The point is Christ did in fact raise up from the grave. If only in this life we have hope when we die, then it, we just go off into nothingness then everything's in vain. Reading your Bible's a waste of time. Going to church is a total waste of time. And why would we even do such a thing? Being a Christian is a waste of time if Jesus didn't raise from the grave. That's why this is such an important topic. If you're a Christian, this is an essential part of the Christian faith. And that's where Jesus proved himself to be who he claimed to be. 
by saying, in three days, I will raise this body up. There's, there's things about this that I think are important about the resurrection. We see the resurrection as important as Christians because of a few things. A few things maybe you could jot down as we think through this. So first of all, resurrection as proof. Proof of what? Proof of all of Jesus's claims. Because when Jesus was asked to prove his claims, <clears throat> Jesus told us this is what he would do. I think probably the clearest statement on this is John chapter two, verse 18, 19. We also saw this, by the way, in our gospel of Matthew as we went through this, but Jesus answered, you know, the Jews, when they asked him this question, says then answered, or you might even say asked the Jews and said unto him, what sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? And Jesus answered and said unto them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then, you know, later on we read where it says, and this he spake of the, te spake of the temple of his body. Uh, Paul said, what, don't you know your body is a temple to the Holy Ghost? He was referring to his body. And the disciples realized that later too. Um, now they would twist these words of Jesus to indict him in court. Remember they said, he said he was gonna tear down the temple and three days raise it up again. Um, is that what Jesus said? No. Jesus said, if you tear down this temple, this body, um, not he was gonna tear down the temple in Jerusalem. He never said that. He said, if you tear down this temple, destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up again. I will resurrect from the grave. This is what Jesus said. Um, and many, many religious leaders have come and gone, but never made such a claim that he would prove his claims to be true by something so impossible. Jesus to raise himself up from the grave. By the way, we're gonna see how the Bible calls Jesus the first fruit of the resurrection so that we will be the next fruits. We get to raise up even as he rose up because he was the first one. Why does the Bible act like Jesus was the first one when really Lazarus rose from the grave, uh, Jairus' daughter, uh, there were some Old Testament people that were raised up from the dead, Elijah the prophet. What's the difference between those resurrections, if you would, versus the one Jesus did? Anybody wanna jump in on that one? Yeah, all those other people died again. They, they didn't stay alive. Jesus stayed alive. Later, the Bee Gees wrote a song about that. It was great. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Um, yeah, Jesus was the only one who stayed alive. That's the, the first component. The second component is Jesus is the only one who raised himself from the grave. Lazarus needed Jesus. Uh, Elijah needed the power of the Holy Spirit to have the dead raised. Uh, man alone does not have the power to raise people from the dead. Um, but Jesus not only had the power to raise people from the dead, but to raise himself from the grave. That was his claim. Jesus claimed he could do this. And, he's, and they said, how do we know your claims are true? Destroy this body and I'll show you. I know what I'm talking about. I'll raise up from the dead three days later. What claims would Jesus make that made these guys wanna have proof? Well, Jesus made a lot of claims and a lot of statements Probably the biggest ones, the ones that made them the maddest is when he claimed to be God in the flesh. Uh, John chapter 14, verse nine is one of those classic passages. Jesus said unto them, um, when, this is Philip, the disciple who came up and said, oh, Jesus, show us the Father. We wanna, we wanna see the Father. And Jesus said unto him, have I been so long time with you and yet thou hast not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? Um, Jesus saying, Peter, uh, Philip, don't you know that when you're looking at me, you're looking at the Father in heaven? Same. 
Now, this is a mysterious thing. You know, the, the Holy Trinity, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but one being. I know it makes your brain short circuit. We're not gonna try to defend the Holy Trinity today. Um, and, and really, it is something we take on faith that God is outside of time, space, laws of physics, and he can do whatever he wants. But, but this, this is the first place where we kind of see that. Then there in John chapter 10, verses 30 through 33, Jesus made this claim, I and my Father are one. Now, I could just leave it there, but I put the rest of the scripture on there because some people say, well, Jesus was just claiming to be tight with God, like he was like unified with God. Is that what Jesus was claiming? Because um, if that's what he was claiming, everybody would go, well, good for you. We all wanna be united with God. That's great. But what did the Jews hear him say? When Jesus said, I and my father are one, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy. And because thou being a man, makest thyself God. And they were right. Jesus was saying, I am God in the flesh. If you see me, you've seen the father. I and my father are one. Jesus wasn't just claiming to be tight with God. He was claiming to be God. And this is woven throughout the, the, the New Testament gospel narrative. Even, you know, the woman of Samaria. What area? Samaria. <laughs> no, Samaria was a place where uh, the Jews wouldn't go. They hated Samaritans. But isn't it interesting? Jesus would go to the people that many people hated and he would be kind to them. So Jesus goes to Samaria uh, against what the disciples wanted to do. And he finds the woman at the well at a certain hour of the day where the woman, well, she was probably, we know contextually, she was, she was a, a woman who was probably a prostitute in town there. And it has to do with the time of day and her story and stuff like that. And, and she's a Samaritan woman. Suddenly she sees a Jew and they know, Samaritans know the Jews hate them and they hate the Jews. So the story goes there in John chapter four where, where um, Jesus says, hey, woman, would you please give me something to drink? And she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria, to give you drink? And Jesus says, well, if you drink of the water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. And she starts to realize this isn't your average, ordinary Jew. And so she starts to call him sir, a little more respectful. And, and she says, where is this water, you know, sir? And Jesus says, well, I'll tell you what, go and get your husband and uh, we'll, we'll talk further, you know? And she said, oh, I have no husband. And Jesus said, oh, you've spoken well that you have no husband because actually you have five husbands and the one you're with right now is not your husband. And she said, sir, I perceive thou art a prophet. <laughs> She's pretty perceptive. <laughs> so it goes from you to sir to prophet. And you know, once she realizes he's some kind of prophet, she does whatever it is. Let's ask him a Bible question. We Samaritans believe the holy mountain is Mount Gerizim. You Jews believe it's Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Which one is the true mountain to worship God? And Jesus said, um, my father, which is in heaven, he seeks those who will worship him in spirit and truth. In other words, forget the mountain thing. He, the father God is looking for those who will just worship him in spirit and in truth. And then the woman realizing, wow, this guy's deeper than anything she imagined. And she starts to think, well, man, I wonder, I wonder if I'm gonna learn stuff like this when we actually meet the Messiah someday. And that's when she starts to ask him. In fact, let's just go there on our, on our scripture here board. It says, John 4, 25, the woman said unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, 
he will tell us all things. And Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. I was a young pastor, uh, as an assistant pastor years ago, and uh, I was one of the guys that often would try to deal with some issues that were more, you know, like what's going on with this person in the sanctuary or if there's a problem. Well, there's one guy who kind of walked around talking to people intensely and he looked kind of weird the way he was carrying himself. And he was, and, and probably the thing, the dead giveaway, he was wearing this lime green polyester suit, nicely pressed, uh, like it's almost like a tuxedo. Uh, and he was walking around our church. And you have to understand our church, it was mostly hippies. So a guy in a suit stuck out, especially a polyester one, lime green. And, um, but the way he was carrying himself, so as a pastor, I had to walk up and say, you know, hey, you know, what's your name? You know, I wanted to kind of find out what the deal of the guy was. And he had these beady eyes and he looked around. And he was, and, and I thought, oh man, something's up with this guy. And I started asking him questions. Like, what are you talking to these people about? You know, because he was, he was kind of freaking people out. Well, finally, I asked him, you know, um, hey, here at our church, we believe in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah? And he looked at me and he said, I that speaketh unto thee am he. A little clue to me that uh, something was off. <laughs> I don't think Jesus would have worn a green polyester suit. But also the guy was sadly, you know, it's amazing because you know, that's the problem. Anybody that claims to be the Messiah, they're probably either a liar or a lunatic. What makes Jesus different? Well, Jesus was the one who gave the, the substantiation, the proof of this claim. When he told the woman at the well at Samaria, now this cracks me up because if you read the rest of the story, Jesus said, I that speak, I'm the Messiah. So the woman leaves her water pots at the well, runs into the town and starts yelling, I met a man out of the well. And he told me everything I ever did. That's what she said. Remember she was a prostitute? Wonder if all the men of the town like, everything? <laughs> he, 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 he told you everything? And, and so the whole town came out to see this man that, that, that this woman of ill repute met. And that I, I believe the Lord saved that woman that day. And maybe many others of the town were saved too. It was, it was quite a story. But what, what makes this claim of Jesus to be God, to be the Messiah, to be the Christ, what makes it legitimate? The only thing that really proves that fact is the resurrection of Jesus. Apart from that, he was just any, like every other religious leader or guru. So it's proof positive. Jesus claims to be the Messiah um, and the people, they just really didn't listen. You know, it's amazing as the disciples, they only got part of the story. After Jesus died, they all went for fear of the Jews. They were shaken in their sandals. The disciples ran into this room in Jerusalem and locked the door and they were hiding in fear. Uh, it was a dark day after Jesus died on the cross. And for several days now, for you know, uh, two, two days, they've been freaking out, afraid. They only had part of the story. It reminds me of a time in history. Uh, if you guys that love history, there's, you know, the Battle of Waterloo was amazing on so many levels. It was basically Wellington uh, from the Brits versus Napoleon from France. Um, but the story is kind of interesting because uh, Napoleon just got off of his, uh, escaped really, Elba the island he was exiled to. Um, but the battle that was about to rage would really decide the future of England. Like it was so uncertain for the British, uh, it was quite a deal. So as the battle raged across the canal, um, they would signal with the ship using semaphore, um, you know, uh, signaling with colored flags to signal the, what was going on. Well, as the battle was wrapping up, 
the, the, one of the ships in the middle started using its signal flags and, 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 and signaling a message. And the, they wrote down the message. The first word they got was, you know, uh, was uh, Wellington. Okay, and that's the British commanding general. Wellington. And then the next word, signal flag. Um, Wellington, the second word, crushed the British because it was Wellington defeated. And then the fog rolled in and they couldn't see the ship any longer. And the people of England, for about three hours, the word was spreading rapidly across the, the, the uh, British island. And people were in despair, thinking, man, we're gonna be speaking French. But then the fog rolled back and the rest of the signal came in. Wellington defeated Napoleon. <laughs> that was the full signal. Uh, I love that story because a lot of times when you think things are really, really bad, the Lord has another part of the story you just haven't heard. The gospel is that to the nth degree. The disciples go, Christ defeated. But what you can say now is Christ defeated death on the cross and rose from the grave alive. That's the full story. If you don't bring the resurrection into the gospel and you wanna just believe Jesus was a guy who existed you know, a couple thousand years ago, it just ruins the whole story. You have to have the resurrection and uh, the resurrection is proof positive. So number one, resurrection as proof. Number two, we consider the resurrection as power. The resurrection of Jesus demonstrates the power of God uh, and, and Jesus, if you would, the same, of life over death. Um, I love John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, where we're reminded Jesus said this before he died on the cross. Um, again, our study of Matthew, we see Jesus intentionally moving his way to the cross. He did this willingly. It says in verse 17 of John 10, therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. Jesus makes the claim, I have the power to lay my life down, but I also have the power to take it back up again. Jesus willingly laid down his life like a good shepherd would for the sheep, but he also, unlike anybody else in history, had the power to raise his life up again. And so the good news of the gospel, because Jesus had the power to raise from the dead, he then also has power to raise you and me from the dead. After we die, Jesus, by doing that, um, he is the hope that we have to have eternal life. This world of secularism and atheism and what have you, did you know the Gen Zers, you know, we call the, there was the, the, the greatest generation, then the baby boomers, and then the Gen Xers, and then the millennials, and the next group is the Gen Zers, but the Gen Zers are starting to get a new name. Um, people are calling them the Doomer, like the baby boomer generation, but the, the Gen Zs are called uh, the Doomer or Doomerism is what they're calling. If you look this up, uh, you know, Doomer and by extension, Doomerism are terms which arose primarily on the internet to describe young people who are extremely pessimistic or even fatalistic about global problems such as climate change, overpopulation, running out of energy and peak oil, the pollution problems, the bank crashing. Um, some Doomers assert there's possibly um, these problems that will bring about altogether human extinction. Um, you know, um, uh, what's, what's her name? Greta Thun Thunberg is a good example of a doomer. She's a 20 year old girl who is screaming at the world because we've ruined the world and, and we're gonna make it so everybody dies. And she's all upset about that because of climate change, so-called. 
Uh, that's why AOC six years ago said the world's going to come to an end in 12 years. Uh, that's doomerism. And, and what's so sad about this to me is very almost laughable as it is. The reason it's tragic is because the Gen Z generation is one of the most depressed, one of the most suicidal generations we've ever seen. Um, they were saying something, you know, did you, if you're watching what's going on, they're talking about like one in three young girls have considered suicide. Um, the, this is the highest rate we've ever seen. Um, and, and it's so sad because if you believe that this world is all there is, no wonder you have the doomer sort of uh, mentality. But I love what 1 Corinthians 15, if you keep reading that chapter I was mentioning, verse 20 and 22, but it says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and he's become the first fruit of them that died. For since man came, by man came death, by man resurrection also of the dead. Um, so really the verification and confirmation that Jesus has the power over life and death should give you and I beautiful, wonderful hope. And that's why instead of when you go through difficult times, you actually like Paul the apostle say, I rejoice. So what? I'm going through difficult times. So what? My life is miserable right now. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, remember what Paul said? He, said? he said, for our light affliction, was Paul's thing a light affliction? I would call his heavy affliction. Being killed, uh, tortured, uh, eventually beheaded, shipwrecked, snake bitten, all the things I mentioned earlier. He says, ah, it's just a bunch of light affliction. He says, our light affliction is just for a moment, but it worketh for us a far more exceeding eternal weight in glory, in other words, in heaven. While we don't look at the things that are seen, we look at the things that are unseen. Um, we don't look at the things that are temporary, we look at the things that are eternal. And that's why in Colossians chapter three, verse one and two, Paul said, if you then be risen with Christ, seek the things which are above where Christ sits at the right hand of the Father, set your affection on things above and not on things of this earth. That's what the Bible teaches to be eternally minded and have the hope of heaven. And that's, that's why we believe the resurrection has power, power to save and power to give us hope for the eternity. So you have the resurrection as proof. You have the resurrection as power. And number three, you have the resurrection as prophecy. Prophecy? One of the things I love about the resurrection is Jesus made prophetic statements about what, what was gonna happen. And we don't even have to go to the Old Testament prophecies. We just go to Jesus's words. Over and over and over again, Jesus made the statements with such precision. If you're about to be apprehended by, say, um, you know, some hostile government and they take you hostage. I heard another reporter in Russia was taken in prison. I think they wanna do another prisoner exchange because that works out so good for Putin right now. Uh, these prisoner exchanges, when we, you know, NBA, women's NBA lady versus a guy who's a spy. Uh, another one of those happened last week if you watch the news. If you were taken captive by the Russian Putin, what would you expect to happen? And would you make a prediction like this? Mark chapter 10, Jesus said, behold, we're going to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered to the chief priests, to the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, the Romans, and they shall mock him, shall scourge him, shall spit upon him and shall kill him. And then the third day he'll rise again. Would you make a declaration? Because that, that's pretty specific. They're gonna spit on you. They're gonna scourge you with a flagellum. They're gonna kill you. And then you're gonna rise again on the third day. That's a prophecy Jesus uttered and it came to, to pass precisely point by point. 
The reason I say that is the resurrection as prophecy is such a beautiful thing. It, it gives us a reliability of Jesus's promises in his word. Jesus knows the beginning from the end. Nobody in the world knows that. Like I said, Muhammad made the one prediction that he'd return to Jerusalem, but he didn't. Jesus made hundreds of predictions, all of which came to pass perfectly, prophetically speaking of himself. Jesus was in control. He knew what was gonna happen. His claims were substantiated when he did all of these things and rose again. If he, if he even predicted all these things minus the resurrection part, we might have doubts. But Jesus, his word is always true. And how much of this word is Jesus's word? How much of this Bible we hold in our hands is actually the word of Jesus? Knowing that Jesus's word is reliable, well, the answer is the whole thing. Uh, remember John chapter one, verse one, you know, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And then just a few verses down, it says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word, the word of truth. He's the embodiment of, the, of what is true. And so that's one of the great beauties of the resurrection. Not only it's, proof of who Jesus claimed to be, power, that he has power over life and death, but it also, you know, is prophecy that was fulfilled, which gives you and I an ability to trust what Jesus and his word says. If you listen to anybody in this world, be careful. There's so much deception out there and misinformation and who knows what's true or false anymore. But you and I have the Bible that is our anchor. It's the, the thing you can count on as absolute truth. And, and we forget the promises. How many of you guys are old enough to remember the Jesus Person Pocket Promise Book? Did any of you guys have one of those? One, <laughs> two, nice. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I think my parents gave me this little, this little pamphlet book that had 300 promises of the Bible organized topically. I wish they would reproduce that. It was a great little thing because you could look up topics. Are you depressed? D, 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 depression. And there were all the promises that the Bible talks about, about your soul. If you keep your mind stayed upon the Lord, he will keep you then in perfect peace. Like there's promises that you can say, these are true promises. And uh, I love all the promises. So if you're financially, you think I'm going down, not if you're a Christian, the promises of God's word. For example, Philippians 4.19, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Just trust his word, trust his promises. I'm a sinner and I failed. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Promises from Jesus, from his word. You know what I love about the truth of the resurrection is it actually happened. When you go to Jerusalem, there's debate, big arguments. I've seen fist fights break out over where the resurrection happened and who has rightful uh, authority to control uh, the sites uh, the first site I take our group to, and here's some Athey Creekers I took a few years ago. Uh, we walked up the uh, Arab quarter uh, there in Jerusalem, and we made our way to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now this is our, our, my favorite tour guide, Steve. He's a great kid from Philly, Philadelphia. He's, he goes, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, that, that's, that's where, and that's the way he says it every time. Uh, but when we go to this church, it's kind of like, oh, I don't love this place, and I'll tell you why. It's not 100% sure that that's where Jesus died and on a cross and was buried. But, you know, they say, some people say traditionally it was. Um, according to traditional accounts, the church itself was built in the fourth century um, AD 
after Roman Emperor Constantine the, the Great legalized Christianity, he sent his mother Helena and she saw this place and this stone. This is a flat stone. They believe Jesus' body was laid on and people wiped their hair and purses and, and lips uh, on this stone, uh, which to me seems like a, as a germaphobe, something I don't really wanna touch. Um, but you can climb down in here and see the, the rock where they believe the cross you know, stood. And, um, you know, Helena claimed that she found the very cross of Jesus, uh, you know, 300 years later. Oh, just happened to stumble on the cross. Uh, did you know they sell pieces of wood in Jerusalem? That's pieces of the cross. Buy a piece of the cross. They've sold so much wood. Somebody did the math. So you can build like 80 Mayflower ships out of the cross wood. It was a huge cross, apparently. Uh, so much wood you can... But architecturally, this is kind of an impressive... Uh, ancient, really old building. In the middle, there's like a church within the church. This little uh, thing is where they believe Jesus was buried. Um, they, but when Helena came, she found the crucifixion, she blames, and she saw this temple dedicated to Jupiter and Venus uh, and the temple uh, for those two gods were torn down. So she assumed that to be the tomb of Christ. Um, so the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was uh, uh, built over the site that Helena found and was consecrated in 335 AD. Um, the fragile status quo of this place is interesting because the Catholics, the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, and all the doxes, um, they all fight over who really has control over this church. But they've kind of got this status quo, like we've got this little section, they've got that section, and this section belongs to you and us, and, but you can feel the tension. I've seen two priests punching each other in the face over who gets rights. There's, there's a funny thing. When you go to the Church of the Holy Spirit, there's this little wooden ladder that's up on a ledge outside in the front. It doesn't really fit with the beauty of the church, but there's this little wooden ladder. And the ladder looks like pretty old. Well, the story is hilarious. Um, nobody touches the ladder because there's a debate of whose ladder it is. Is it the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox? It's been sitting there. Nobody wants to touch it lest somebody breaks out into a big fight. They don't mess with the ladder. It's still sitting there and it's been there for 300 years. That's true. If you don't believe me, look it up online. You'll see the ladder in front of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It reminds me of my ladder in the backyard that I should probably put back in the shed. <laughs> anyway, um, that's the first place we go. And, and that's where probably most people believe the death and burial of Jesus was at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Um, I don't really trust Constantine's mother to be the expert at the time, but there are possibilities that that could be the place. There's another place the British found back in the 1800s called the Garden Tomb. They were doing some archeological digs. They found a garden tomb of a wealthy man. And this garden tomb is actually very peaceful. The British, since they found it, have preserved it. They didn't build a gaudy chapel over it or anything like that. They just kept it a garden. And you can go through, and since, um, you know, uh, since way back uh, in the 1894, they started giving tours uh, to have people see, well, we, we believe this could be the tomb that Jesus was in. They, and, and, and if you read the biblical narrative, this is the hill of the skull. They believe he was crucified on the top of this hill. And then at the base, there's a bus station and there's also a garden. And this garden, they believe, is where Jesus was buried. They found a wealthy man's tomb. Nine criteria are met that the Bible requires for a place to be the location. So the British guys, these little old British guys are really cool. They get there and they tell you, this very well could be the place. But they say, but you know, it really doesn't matter the place. It's what actually happened that matters. 
And that's why I think I like this place. It's more peaceful. There's not people kissing with their lips, things for hundreds of years, but there is an ancient tomb from the first century. You can see on this tomb, there's a trough in front of the door. That trough is where the rolled stone would have been set. And they would, that'd be like the channel. And then the stone would roll up over that opening, um, sealing off the tomb. Um, this, this area is interesting, but I, I think the Brits are right. By the way, this, it's hard to see this. There's an old anchor that was carved in this Jerusalem limestone, uh, an anchor pic picture that um, was the symbol of the early church. That's why some people believe this could be the tomb of, of Jesus himself. Plus they've not found any human DNA residue in the inside of this left from a decaying body in this tomb. So it was never, it was at least never used as a tomb. Uh, uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, the point that I'm making is the, 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 the historicity of the resurrection, no, it doesn't really matter where it happened. It's the, what matters is that it did happen. And the facts around the tomb are to me compelling. Really quick, the tomb was sealed. We saw that Wednesday night, sealed with a Roman seal. That's not like with a Tupperware, you know, kind of seal. It's like, it was sealed with like a, a seal that would be broken if you rolled the stone away. If you broke a Roman seal, that would be death. Um, Pilate in Matthew 27, Wednesday night we saw Pilate said, make it as sure as you can and put the guard in front of it, the Roman 50 soldiers. Um, now, some people try to say, well, this, the, the tomb was sealed, but the, the disciples came and stole the body. You guys, we've already seen Peter's handiwork with a sword. Is he, is he like a SEAL team guy? No. Uh, he, what is he gonna take on a Roman you know, uh, watch of 50 soldiers? Uh, that's, that's ridiculous. And then break the Roman seal and live to tell the tale? That's very unlikely if you're trying to make up stories about what happened. Um, you know, um, some say, well, the Roman soldiers fell asleep on the job. Anybody that knows the history of Rome, were the Roman soldiers typically falling asleep on the job? Was that a normal Roman soldier thing? Ha, not even close. Um, what happens if you fall asleep uh, in your basic training in the military here in America? You might be with a toothbrush cleaning the latrines, you know, uh, doing it on your hands and knees in the bathroom for whatever. In the Roman days, there's a word they had that they did called decimation. Did you guys know where the word decimation? Well, they were decimated, we say today. That came from a Roman soldier term. What it meant was if a group of Roman soldiers were derelict in their duties in any, any way, shape, or form, um, they would punish their, their platoon or their group of soldiers um, with capital offenses such as cowardice, mutiny, desertion, insubordination, or you know, even uh, not doing your job, they would decimate your platoon. What does that mean? One in 10 would be killed. They would literally cast lots. You can look this up. I'm not making this up. They would cast lots, the Roman soldiers, and whoever the lots fell on, the other guys would pull their swords out and kill them. And those, like if there were 100 guys, 10 of them would be slain by their buddies. Um, to be a reminder, don't fall asleep on the job and make sure and do your job. Uh, there's, it gets more horrifying than that. There's actual stories where the Romans would say, you know, if there was a group of, you know, 50 soldiers and they fell asleep on the job or didn't do their job or were deserters or whatever, they would do decimation. They'd cast lots and 10 out, or pardon me, five out of the 50 would be killed. But then they would skin the bodies of these guys and fly their skins like flags. And this group would have to march around with their buddies flapping in the wind on a standard walking down the road. Do you think they'd like, yeah, they just... Don't look the other way, I'm gonna fall asleep or fall because I'm really tired. Um, see, the point that I'm making is, if you know anything about the history of Rome, 
a sealed tomb with a Roman guard in front of it. The only story that makes sense to me is the biblical narrative we just read, where an angel of the Lord shows up and the Roman soldiers fall down like dead men. And they're laying like dead men on the ground and then the tomb's empty and the guys wake up and to their horror, the tomb is empty. Um, This is what actually happened. The tomb was sealed. There was also an empty tomb. Um, Now, how do you know, Brett, you weren't there. How do you know the tomb was empty? Well, there were three sources that told us the tomb was empty. The Christians, the disciples, which that's obvious. They They would say that. But the other two are interesting. The Jews acknowledged the tomb was empty and the Romans ultimately acknowledged the tomb was empty. Um, you know, Dr. Paul Mayer, an expert on all this history, said it's positive evidence from a hostile source. In essence, if a source admits a fact that is decidedly uh, in its favor, the fact is, or is not in its favor, the fact is genuine. In other words, the Romans saying the tomb was empty, that only undermines their, their argument. Um, but all that to say that there was an empty tomb and all the parties involved admitted Even the Romans and the Jews, the tomb was empty. Fact number three, the large stone was removed. How did that happen? What what, what was it that broke that stone? By the way, there's no stone they found that was at the garden tomb. They didn't find that. Or also at the sepulcher, there's no round stone they believe was covering the tomb. But this is what a stone typically would have looked like. This is a picture we took up on Mount Nebo um, where they found an ancient uh, tombstone that was rolled over. Uh, And this is the kind of stone that would have been rolled in front of the tomb in the garden tomb there in the channel in front of the door. They would roll that over and then seal it shut. Um, And all the gospels mention the stone was moved. Um, And that's kind of an important thing. That's evidence of what actually happened. So this large stone was removed. And then also fact, 500 people saw Jesus after he rose from the grave. Um, I love that. Um, It's 1 Corinthians 15, verses five through eight, that says he was seen above 500 brethren at once. If you have a historical fact and you're trying to find out how legitimate it is, 500 eyewitnesses is pretty good. But not only did those eyewitnesses say, we saw it, but they were willing to be tortured and not change their, their, their story. The Romans wanted the story gone. So they said, say Caesar is Lord, not Jesus is Lord. And these same people would die brutal, torturous death saying, no, Jesus rose from the grave. We will not deny that. And many of them died being sawn in half, tortured, beheaded, uh, you know, beaten over the head with clubs. Like there's stories, read Fox's Book of Martyrs, how people died for their belief in a resurrected Jesus. The point that I'm making is, and I could just go on and on about all the evidence and facts around the resurrection, but the fact of the matter is, 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. That's the gospel. And because of that, we have life, eternal life to look forward to. And for you to be saved, you need to accept that as the gospel, the gospel truth. People say that, it's the gospel truth. The gospel truth is that Jesus died, was buried, and that he rose up from the grave. One of the most provable facts in all of history. Amen? Amen. Lord, I pray as we have thought through this today on this Sunday morning, I pray that you just seal that in our hearts, Lord. And, and man, even as your word says, the faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word. May that be sealed in our hearts, Lord, the truth of the resurrection. We do pray next Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection, I pray that people might come to hear the good news and repent of their sins and be saved by the same cross that we just talked about. 
the same resurrection that brings life, even to the most godless, even to the most sinful. Lord, there's no one that you cannot forgive who wants to believe and accept. So I pray that many would come to know you. For those that are saved, may they be filled with joy, even as those women who walked away from the tomb that morning, fear and joy, may that be us as well. In Jesus' name, amen.